Hello, and welcome to episode 41 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. I am Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. As most listeners probably know by now, Carl Bialik is the host of the 30 Love podcast, which is an excellent compliment to this one, or this one is an excellent compliment to that. I'm not sure, but our podcasts go well together, so if you enjoy this, you'll probably want to check out the many episodes with some really interesting guests of his other podcasts as well. So the big event in the last seven days of tennis is the ATP World Tour Finals in London, and Carl, this was a, a huge breakthrough for Alexander Zverev, his biggest title so far. Let's just start with, with some talk about Zverev. What do you think he did this week that made it possible for him to, to post this impressive result? I think he outplayed two of the greatest players of all time in the last two matches. I, until then, he was good, but he had been dominated by Djokovic in their round-robin match, a point that Djokovic made in his runner-up speech after the final on Sunday. And this this tournament really gives players a second chance with the format. Zverev could lose to the clear top dog in his group, and as long as he took care of his other two opponents, he could be right there in the semis and, and because they were in the same group, not have to play Djokovic again. And against Federer and against Djokovic, he was dominant on serve, almost untouchable, which given his height at 6'6 and his variety on serve, he should be, and he was really effective on return. Djokovic had some really long streak of not being broken against you know the top players in the world going into the final and going into the late, late stages of the first set of the final, and then Zverev broke him three straight return games plus the last game of the match. So Sometimes he's been a little suspect on return, and he was really strong against Federer and Djokovic. So, yeah, the, the the big results here that made this possible were, like you said, beating Federer in the semis and beating Djokovic in the sort of revenge match in the final. How much of that do you think is, is Zverev stepping up and beating the best in the world, and how much of that do you think is Federer and Djokovic not quite showing up for these final matches. I think Federer hasn't fully shown up since, I don't know, the early stages of Indian Wells this year. Like he's won some titles since then, but had a lot of struggles, had very few matches where he looked completely dominant and did not look great in that semi, but I thought the level was pretty high, especially in the first set until Federer served at 5-6 and got broken at love, pretty much until that point in the match, I thought they were both playing really well, and I was really impressed with Zverev staying toe-to-toe with the strong Federer. In the final, Djokovic was definitely not himself, and this is the second straight tournament where he looked dominant going into a final against a younger opponent whom he was favored to beat and beat soundly, and he just wasn't at his at his peak. But I still give Zverev a lot of credit because it's not like Zverev nonetheless struggled to beat him. He beat him pretty soundly, and he had one hiccup in the second set where he got broken and I think broke back immediately. There is also this this larger point, though, which is that one way to tell the story of recent years in the ATP, the story that, that's familiar is that at various points, Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic have dominated despite being near or in their 30s and that's because of how incredible they are and their resurgence and the other way to look at it is it shows how weak the rest of the field has been so it could be that the the Djokovic and Federer we've seen are just not what they were at their peak that's certainly what Elo suggests and that Zverev is finally getting good enough to beat them or I shouldn't say finally he's beaten them both in big finals before the question is can he do it consistently and more importantly, can he do it in a major, you know, more consistently just means other tournaments with similar formats, especially in the semis and finals. Majors are a very different story, and his story there has been very different. Yeah, let's talk about that. Um, so this this is the, the biggest accomplishment of Zverev's career so far, On uh, in addition to a few other Masters that he's already won. But 
yeah, as you say, his his record at slams has been for for a player at his level, it's been abysmal. Uh, I think he's made one quarterfinal, and that one was really by the skin of his teeth. Uh, it's you would think a player who's solidly top five in the world and has been for I don't know a year now, uh, he'd at least have a semifinal. He, if you look at other players in his position in the past, like a lot of them would have a slam title by now, uh, at least a final. So, I mean, we've talked about this a few times on the podcast before, what might be causing that. And I think we both usually end up just kind of throwing our hands up and saying it must be something we can't quantify, or maybe it's just bad luck. Maybe it'll shift soon. Who knows? Do you think that this result this week, beating two top players on a, one of the biggest stages in tennis, do you think that that changes our expectations at all for Zverev in his 2019 slam campaign? I'm not ready to, for a couple of reasons. One, I think we can overweight the world tour finals because they're, they're billed as the finals or the best players all gathered. And it's the last tournament of the year in the ATP calendar. So we, we remember it for a while. Memory lingers for a while. But Dimitrov beat Goffin at the final last year, and it did not indicate a, a boost to either's slam or other results in, in 2018. And Zverev's problem in slams generally has not been the very top players, or at least recently. I mean, his seed has just been too high for them to be the problem. His problem has been getting to them in the last rounds. I mean, all of 2018, he was seeded fourth or better at the slams and then lost to a guy um, ranked lower in most cases much lower there's no real shame in losing to Dominic team at Roland Garros team has um, made the semis two straight years made the final this year but there the other three losses were were bad losses and again with his seed like he should be able to to get to the quarterfinals without even playing a high-ranked player and he often doesn't even get to the fourth round so he he went into 2018 in a similar position to where he's going to enter 2019 he's going to be the fourth ranked player entering 2019 and i i believe he's going to break through i believe this is at least somewhat fluky it just doesn't make sense and there are other top players, Federer notably, who had trouble breaking through at slams after they'd broken through elsewhere. But I don't have any more confidence, particularly, than I would have had 12 months ago. Yeah, that seems reasonable. And yeah, I mean, we're going to remember Zverev's year as very solid in part because he capped it on such a strong note. But like a lot of his his best breakthrough weeks came last year, not this year. I mean, the ones I really remember, I think it was Rome uh, in May 2017 and then Toronto uh, in the summer of 2017 with his, his first Masters victories on those two surfaces. Uh, those are the ones that really stick out in memory. And he's had plenty of good wins this year as well. He, I mean, he won, I mean, just in terms of raw numbers, he won more matches than anybody else on tour in 2018. So I don't want to take anything away from his season, but... Yeah, if you if you look at the seasons in aggregate, then yeah, it doesn't represent a huge step forward. Uh, we've known for a long time that he could challenge the best players on any given day, and he managed to put two of those days together against guys who weren't playing perfectly the, um, this past weekend. Um, one comparison that's been made a lot in the last few years with their struggles at slams is between Alexander Zverev and Alina Svitolina, who... Uh, has also not won a slam, has been in the top five for quite some time, um, not continuously in her case, but she spent a lot of weeks in the top five, won some sizable tournaments, beaten a lot of top players, and the parallel got even stronger these last few weeks because they both broke through with their, their best yet titles at the their respective tour finals. Uh, if you had to set the odds, Carl, what do you think is more likely a Zverev slam in 2019 or Svitolina slam in 2019? Svitolina. What do you think the odds are for each one? Twenty eight percent for her and twenty six percent for him. Oh, so it's pretty close. Yeah. So you're thinking you're putting them both at an average of 
let's say, 7% at any given slam. It's a little bit higher than that because I guess there's a chance that they would win multiple slams. But does that does that feel right then if we put it in those terms that going into any slam next year, each of them have about a 7% chance of winning? Yeah, it feels a little ungenerous, but it's a combination of taking into account their slam records and... In Svitolina's case, having so many major contenders plus ones we're not even thinking of, given the recent slam record. And in his case, just how much we can expect Djokovic and a healthy Nadal, which I expect to see next year, and maybe Federer uh, hogging that, that pie, hogging of that pie. Yeah, that really is the the big question. Is it's it's possible to imagine a 2019 in which the big four continues to win every slam, and it's it's a little more far fetched, but it's possible to imagine where this is this is the year of the big fade, that you know, Federer is getting old, Nadal is still dealing with injury problems, Murray's still trying to come back, Djokovic. I mean, he looks strong, but not as strong as he would look if he had won yesterday. Um, I guess it's going to happen eventually. If it all happens at once, then you know, Zverev could really break through. But that's that's a lot of ifs, I guess. They've done so well to pick up for the others, <laughs> pick up from the others. It's not like they're helping each other by doing it. But if one or two or even three are weak, the fourth tends to be strong and stronger than everybody else. And I agree that it can't last forever because obviously, but it keeps lasting. So I'm I'm no longer dismissing it simply based on on age or injury yeah it's really tough to put percentages on these because as we've discussed on a lot of podcasts in the past that we're predicting things that are non-linear yes these guys will will get worse with age but getting worse with age doesn't mean a 10 percent decline every year it might mean a five percent improvement next year and then a sudden retirement at age 38 for Federer or something um, and the same thing with all these players they, they could show up and be better next year than they are right now or they could give into a nagging injury and miss half the season so when we're making predictions they kind of have to be weighted averages of all those things but a weighted average of a 10% decline doesn't really imply that we think a 10% decline is likely. It's It represents a mix of other things. Um, a couple things Jeff, on the... hold on. Sort of, I, I'm, I'm trying yeah. to let you off the hook less often. What are your percentages for Svitolina or Zverev winning a slam in 2019? Hmm. I would go a little higher for Zverev. I would say at least 35%. Uh, I, I, it feel, I guess it depends a lot. On, on who enters and, and how healthy and strong the big four look. But I don't know. It seems plausible to me to send him into at least the hard court slams at 10%. Uh, maybe not the French Open that high because of Rafa. But I don't know. I would say I would say 35%. And then Svitolina. I've always been bullish. Not always. I've, I've been bullish lately on Svitolina. Um I would say they're both around 35. I, I guess if I had to pick one, I'd go the same direction you would, that Svitolina is your more likely slam champion next year, just because it's tougher to imagine other players sweeping the field. Um, but, yeah. I guess I'm a little more optimistic for both. And we've talked about this before with forecasts, but we're not explicitly talking about, but we're probably factoring in the probability that they get injured. I mean, it seems more likely when you're in your... Th- early 30s or then in your early 20s but it's always possible yeah that's true uh, I, I might be forgetting something but it, it does seem like Zverev's been very consistent he doesn't have any lingering problems that I'm aware of yeah and he seems I mean, to schedule still... pretty well yes he might have been a little aggressive this year especially since he knew he was at a level to to win a lot His, he he made some comments about the the length of the season and as i mentioned he won more matches than anybody else this year so he he entered more tournaments than he had to i mean he played the munich 250 on clay he played hmm, not a grass 250 but he he played more 500s than he needed to I mean, he he definitely could have taken a couple more weeks off this year but i think that's a pretty common choice made by younger players to schedule a little more aggressively because they don't expect necessarily to 
to, to play so well for the whole year. Well, and he knows he'll get a break the second week of slams. <laughs> yeah, I guess he did have more of those breaks. So. Yes, well played. Um, so one quirky thing about the Tour Finals this year is of the tw- 15 matches, 12 round robin matches plus the semifinals and finals, 15 matches, 14 were in straight sets. Um, the only exception was Chilich Isner, which isn't exactly a, a compelling match to watch most of the time. Uh, this is in pretty stark contrast to the WTA Tour Finals in Singapore. I think nine of the 12 round-robin matches went to three sets. Uh, maybe all three of the final round matches did as well. So double-digit three-set matches in Singapore and one three-set match out of 15 in London. Uh, uh, most of the comments I, I heard and saw on Twitter about that seemed to suggest that was a, a sign of, of bad quality tennis or, or just lack of good matchups or something. Do you subscribe to that, Carl? I mean, were you disappointed that we didn't see more long, drawn-out battles in London? Yeah, I mean, I think it's disappointing to not get that winner-take-all set, or at least not get it more often. I think it's not just about the straight sets. I mean, you, you look down the row of the, the column of scores, and... You've got 6-1, 6 I mean, those are not close second sets. Uh, on the, and a lot of these guys are big servers. You mentioned Chilich Isner, but we also had Anderson and Zverev in the field. And it was not, you know, it was a court that rewarded attacking plays. So you'd expect fewer breaks of serve, or at least you'd hope with all top 10 players that it would be more evenly distributed breaks of serve. And I think the the other part of it for, at least for me, but I expect for some other observers, was just the feeling of there isn't a coherent narrative here. So, the I mean, Nishikori is really the example, and I imagine he was just not healthy for the last two matches. But he goes in and beats, what is he, like six-time champ Federer in straight sets on an indoor hardcourt in the first match and is looking like he's off to a great start in the group. And then he loses his next match to Kevin Anderson, 6-0, And Anderson is a credible opponent who's had a lot of good wins, but they've tended to play each other pretty closely, and Anderson doesn't tend to break serve every time. And then he plays team, who isn't a, um, is is nowhere near his best on an indoor hard court, as you've written about, and loses 6-1, 6-4. And if he's really not even healthy enough at that point to play, that's why they're alternate, so that we get high-quality matches even in, in basically a dead rubber. So it, it was hard to build any sort of story of like, oh, well, Nishikori is having a really strong tournament, or conversely, Federer is having a really weak tournament, because then he went and won his last two matches easily against the guys who crushed Nishikori. So it was just kind of even if you could get excited about a straight set result because it was an upset, then the excitement would dissipate quickly. Yeah, we ended up with a better narrative only after the final, right? I mean, it, it, it seemed like it was it was Djokovic's tournament to lose. Uh, he blew through the round-robin stage. The other round-robin with, with Federer and Anderson looked a little weak, like you say. There wasn't a clear story emerging from that. And then, because Zverev managed to to have these two solid matches over the weekend, then we we got a bit of a surprise, and Zverev flipped the script a little bit. But but yeah, you're right. Up to that point, uh, wasn't much of a story to take home from the tournament. Um, do you think that these matches in general, or the semifinals and finals in particular, would have been better or more interesting had they been five setters? I mean, I would, I think at least this very Federer semi, because on paper it looks very close, 7 5, 7 6. I'd, I'd have loved to see Zverev be forced to win a third set. It's hard to expect much better from Djokovic Anderson after 6 2, 6 2. I think that was the score of their first two sets at Wimbledon. They did play a third set, and it was actually a really good set that went to a tiebreaker. So it's a reminder not to extrapolate too hard from early set scores. So, yeah, maybe that could have been interesting. Anderson did at times look really good in London. 
And then in the final, I mean, I just love the idea of, of seeing Zverev have to play a best of five. One, the, the most likely explanation for why he struggles at slams is the best of five format, because that's the biggest difference between slams and other tournaments. There's also this sense of people pay a lot of money. There's a lot of expectation. It's In the U.S., it's aired on ESPN2. And there's something potentially grander about a best of five format. And there's been talk, we've talked about formats. And one of the ideas that's been floated is you have to split the first two sets to force a best of five. So it wouldn't have happened in any of those matches. And maybe you want to be sure to have a fifth set tiebreaker for the reasons we've discussed about the criticism when, when there isn't one and matches go really long. But I'm in favor of it, especially, as you noted in the show notes, this is the last match of the year. So unless these guys are playing Davis Cup, I guess you could have a Davis Cup exception for this year. And I don't know what you what you do in future years, but you could say if Zverev has to go get on a plane and get ready for a bunch of best of five set matches, then you don't have to do it in the final. But otherwise, why not? Like, there's there, everyone's there watching the tennis season end and why not give them more tennis between two of the best players in the world yeah it, it, it it's one of those things that feels like a no-brainer to me and i i, I kind of want to dig back into the the news coverage and and press conference quotes from whenever it was maybe 10 years ago or so that the masters and tour finals stopped doing five setters for finals because uh, it seems like such an obvious thing to do. Like, you, you have this crowd paying top dollar for a showdown between the top two players. Uh, having having a best of five guarantees that you don't get a really quick blowout. Uh, it gives you the chance for an epic match in a way that best of three doesn't, uh, at least most of the time. Um, similarly, I, I, I want, I, I, I'm really baffled by the decision to of how they play the doubles matches at the tour finals because it's been, I think it's been about 10 years now that ATP doubles has been played with the match tie break. And I understand the reasoning. I, I've come to terms with it that at the typical ATP event that if only out of interest for maintaining the schedule for, for um, broadcasters that, doubles needs to be kind of constrained time-wise so the match tie break prevents matches from going really long you get kind of this this limit of about an one and a half hour match most of the time absolute maximum of about two hours so i get it it serves its purpose but then you have the world tour finals where there's a maximum of two matches per session and i guess with the exception of the semifinals i'm not sure if they do that as one session or two but two sessions there's only it is two sessions. So you get maximum two matches per session. Um, they're all best of three. And still, with like the eyes of the world watching, the doubles matches have match tie breaks, and they're sort of artificially shortened. Um, Plus the no-ad scoring. How do you feel? Oh, right, no-ad scoring as well. I mean, how, how do you feel about that, Carl? Do you think we'd be better off if they, if they went with the ad scoring and full third set for doubles at the Tour Finals? I think what they're thinking is that a bet of the the singles format for doubles can go three hours or even longer. Uh, just you know, if if you really have a lot of deuce games and tiebreakers, and they want to have a predictable TV time for for singles. And I get that. I need to see the numbers on how often that really happens, like how big of a risk that is and how bad it would be for someone to tune in and see the exciting end to a doubles match. Like you don't need a long break between doubles and singles. You just get the doubles players off and the singles players on. So like 15, 20 minutes, maybe everyone's in that arena. It's not like a slam where they they might be in some distant locker room. I think it'd be worth it. I think Many of the times I've attended or watched, the doubles match has been the highlight. I also think I'm a lousy proxy because I love doubles tennis and would often rather watch it than singles. But it does seem like the one time that you get the the audience that is up for doubles, they want value for their ticket, they come in time for the doubles match, and then you race through it, even if it's a really close, exciting match. Yeah, uh, and and you're right to point out that broadcast decisions are are behind 
why they play the shortened format. And it, it's clear just looking at the orders of play. Like I think the doubles matches are scheduled for 12 and the singles matches are scheduled for two in the daytime. So there's this expectation that you're not going to go over about an hour, 40 minutes for the doubles. But there's no law. It needs to be a two-hour time slot. I mean, like you say, even at the extreme double, very few doubles matches go much longer than that. And why don't you just have the doubles match start 30 minutes sooner? I mean, when I went to the semifinals in Basel a few weeks ago, the first doubles match kicked off at noon, and then the first singles semi uh, was scheduled for two and a half hours later. So, I mean, it was just expected that fans who came for the doubles were going to probably have some dead time in there, but at, the, at least the broadcasters got their guarantee of, of a 2.30 start unless something really, really unusual happened. I, I, and, I do think you just touched on, I think, one of their hesitations, which is it's not just the shorter format, but there's just less uncertainty around, there's less of a band around the time. And there is a risk if you go to the longer format and then at, give more time in the schedule that you could have a really long break between the doubles and singles match, which could in turn lead to fans not coming for the doubles match, which would be somewhat counterproductive. Yeah, that's true. I mean, what's, is there an argument against flipping the singles and doubles in the day session? I guess in the night session as well, just having the singles first, having that be a rock solid start time and then playing the doubles after that. I love that. And I think, you would get a lot of people staying. It's it's easier to get people to stay than it is to get people to arrive early. Um, I don't I don't see a downside. I guess there's maybe a downside in terms of they don't want to end things really late in London when transit can just like shut down, and they don't want to move the singles match too early because it's kind of in prime time, at least for the night session. Yeah. For the for the day session, it feels doable, and I'm not sure how long they need between the day and the night session they do need to clear everyone out but it still seems easier than clearing everyone out of like a whole um of a stadium inside of a grounds like slams have to do all the time yeah uh, and even even with some of the things we're talking about like, we're we're addressing the question of whether the whole tournament could be played with standard singles scoring and initially i was just thinking why not at least use that scoring for the final? Just like I'm suggesting going back to best of five for the singles final. Like it doesn't have to be all or nothing. As it turned out, the the doubles final this year between Herbert Mahu and Sock Bryan was, I, I haven't watched it, but it, it, it sounded like a really compelling match and went to 13-11 in the match tie break. I think both teams had at least five match points. So... There's a lot of drama in that match tiebreak, but at the same time, it meant that the this final match of the season was determined by a tiebreak, which is pretty heavily luck influenced. When they could have played a third set, I mean, it which could like have ended in tiebreak, but still, it could have ended in tiebreak. But the the odds are way, way, way lower, even in a, a serve dominated doubles match. Uh, it seems like that's a possible solution. Is at least let them play a, a, an, an unshortened match for the final when you don't have the same constraints on time. I mean, I think the way they did the schedule, they, they the start times were two and a half hours apart, but I don't think there's any reason they couldn't have the start times be three or even three and a half hours apart Absolutely. for the final, yeah. which is just the one session. For the Exactly. For the final, they, they kind of average the times of the two sessions. Like, uh, we have too much time. We don't know when to put this, so... Why not stretch it out? Why not stretch out the last day of the ATP season? Yeah, it was it was really frustrating because it, it clashed with Game 7 of the World Chess Championship, which was also in London. I feel like they could have coordinated better. Are they still doing no ad scoring for that? For the Chess Championship? Yeah. I don't even know what that... Actually, no. I did notice one similarity, though. Is It just... I was just reading up on the format last night and a few, so the, the, the world championship is every two years, I believe. And, um, only uh, the last few cycles, they introduced a tiebreaker. If, if the 12 games of this 12 standard chess games of the, the championship were tied, because at this point 
Carlson, and by the time you listen to this, there will be eight games uh, in the books, but right now there are seven, and they've drawn all seven, so they're tied. If they get to 12 and they're still tied, the tiebreaker is really complicated, but they play a sequence of games at faster speeds. I think they play two uh, rapid chess games and then two blitz chess games, which is even shorter than rapid chess, but it, it does kind of feel like fifth set 12-12 at Wimbledon. It's like, well, we have to do something to decide who's better. Let's play faster chess now. So it's probably not a good analogy for no ad. I'm not sure how that would work in chess, but it does seem like a good analogy for tie breaks compared to the maybe more traditional advantage set uh, format. I feel like no ad would somehow be like a way to avoid a draw that if if they're if they draw that then you randomly take away a piece from each player and, and play on i would yeah, watch exactly that. If, you, if you started with half the pawns or something i'm not i'm sure there's many actual variations since chess is a much more i don't know there's a much more mathematically sound set of variations on the game than there are in tennis um the chess abstract yeah. podcast is launching in 2019 Probably with other hosts. I can't wait to listen. Okay, sounds good. Um, okay, so there's that's the tennis for this past week. Uh, there were a lot of other other announcements and developments in tennis that happened during the World Tour Finals. The ATP likes to announce things while it during this week because the ATP kind of has the tennis world all to itself, and. The, the main the main news was the this ATP team cup thing that they're, they're going to roll out in January 2020. And I want to talk about that. But one other thing I want to get to first is something that Tennis TV rolled out during the um, during the tournament this past week. And they're, they're calling it the skill set index. And what in, in, in broad terms, what it means is that they invented these four stats uh, the stats are under pressure, aggression, defense, and endurance. Every every one of the four stats is on a. I mean, maybe it's a zero to one hundred scale, but these the top players this past week. I don't see anybody below sixty six in any or fifty four. I guess in any of them, that's Isner on defense. So zero to one hundred, and these stats are based on a whole bunch of other statistics mixed together in some undisclosed way. By the and, way, it shows just how we get a little behind-the-scenes taste of what happened here because it's called attack elsewhere and sometimes on TV, and yet it's called aggression at the top and in the chart. So they're still figuring out, they're still balancing their aggression and naming these these components. Good catch. Yeah, I, I'm basing this off of a, there's an article on the TennisTV.com blog that, that lists the factors that go into these stats and shows these four, four ratings for all the eight players who are in London. Uh, I think just the numbers were showing up on the broadcasts and the commentators were talking about them occasionally. Um, so Carl presented with these, these new stats, which sound pretty advanced and complicated. I mean, what's your take? My first one is you've got five or more components for each of these four scores. I would just give us the components. Some of these sound like fun ones to have. Um, average shot depth on the run is one of the defense components. Percent of returns hit with slice. Yeah, I'd love to see those. Love to see how, how players measure up. There's, I think, a, a smart one for endurance change in topspin speed from set one to set three i think that means the speed of shots that are hit with topspin uh like ground strokes some of these are mm-hmm. even like hard to interpret we, we talked before recording about forced errors per match as a component on defense and i don't know if my hitting a lot of forced errors means that i prevented you my opponent from hitting winners or if it means that I was playing bad defense because it allowed you to hit shots that forced me into errors. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. The broader it's also not clear uh, with that and a couple of others whether they're to what degree their rate stats is in, forced errors per match is listed and aces per match is listed. So someone who's playing a lot of three set matches is going to have more of both 
just because the matches are longer. I hate, I, I think we've talked before about our dislike. I mean, we, I should reserve the word hate for things really worth hating, but it's so frustrating to see a per match stat when you have the per point stat, which is what you pretty much always want. And you can think of variations on that, like per for aces, you really care about per service point and for forced errors, maybe it's really about how you're playing the return points, but it's definitely not about the match. I mean, I think also, even though, yeah, so this is from the Masters 1000 tournaments for the most part. So at least they're all best of three matches. But for a lot of season long matches, you're you're skewed by how many of their matches were at the slams. And some players play more matches at the slams, as we talked about with Zverev before. I mean, I think the bigger point here is tennis has some really great underlying raw data. They know there's appetite for that data, including from their TV audiences, and they want to make scores that sound like things people know, and they don't have people who know how or care about making them something meaningful, something that actually correlates to the thing that you want to measure. So they just find everything they can measure and they mash them together in some arbitrary way, and they say, here's a score it seems to produce kind of credible results. So maybe the answer isn't that far off and maybe we're still better off with it, but I just, it's hard to take seriously knowing what, what's going into it. Yeah. And I think you saying they're matched together in arbitrary ways. I think that might even be optimistic. I, your last point that they seem to spit out sensible answers is let's keep in mind that this was, these numbers were rolled out this week for this tournament with this set of eight players if if they created a stat that made sense, but it said that, I don't know, that Djokovic was the worst of the eight under pressure or something, like, it's, it's theoretically possible that that is true. Uh, I wouldn't bet on it, but it's possible. But if... If they're showing that to, you know, Robbie Koenig before he goes on uh, on the air, then, I mean, there's no way that they're going to put that on the broadcast. Uh... So I strongly suspect that whatever intentions they started with, the weights on all of the inputs for these stats ended up partly influenced by what they spit out for the, these particular players right now. So it was, it was virtually guaranteed going in that we were going to have a really high score for Isner on attack, a really high score for Djokovic on defense. And even if the best possible stats should do that, I'm guessing the way the sausage got made in this case was extremely unsound. And you can see exactly what you're describing. Like everyone knows Isner, who's 6'11", something like that, makes a lot of first serves, period, because taller people have an easier time aiming into a box while hitting over the net. And, you know, the first under pressure stat is first serves made on big points and there's another one that's like percent of breakpoints saved. There's another one that's percent of breakpoints won, which I think is the same thing as percent of breakpoints saved. <laughs> um, wait, by the way, average points won per tournament? What? Yeah. That is so weird. I guess that's like if you win a lot of matches in a tournament, you win a lot of points. But why not just say like match one loss record and why is that under pressure? Um, yeah. Anyway, so... You know, there are some that are going to like favor certain people. If you want Federer to get a good attack score, you'd include as one of the attack, uh, one of the attack components, average rally hit point. You'd also include percent shots hit on the rise because people know that those are things Federer does more than other players. So yeah, it's just like okay, we we've always known that Djokovic is good at X because we've said so, and also he's good overall, so he must be good at X. We think he's good at X, in part because he always does X. Can we measure that? Okay, great. I used X twice intentionally to show how muddled these things can get. Um, let's measure that thing for the, as a proxy for the thing we know to be true, and it'll show that Djokovic is good. So I think you can make certain choices to start with, and then you can make certain choices to end with, as you pointed out, with weights to, to get numbers that fit your preconceived notions. Yeah, and that's ultimately the most frustrating thing to me is that these these decisions were pretty obviously made 
just because somebody thought they were the right stats. And as you point out, Carl, with percent of breakpoints saved in one, then it's it's not even that well thought out. So, I mean, just as, as you also said that a lot of these individual components would be super interesting. I mean, what's really frustrating to me is if you just give me and some other analysts the data, like you'd have better stats in a few weeks. Like just just tell us some of the, these these aggregate Hawkeye stats that you're talking about, and we'll figure out how meaningful they are, how much they correlate to you know the, the difference in in individual match results, that the the reasons why certain players are winning and certain players aren't. Uh, People will do that work for you for free, and it will result in more fan engagement. But instead, they throw it into a pot and make this horrible, tasteless soup. Um, and the end result is, I guess... It some, tastes horrible, and way. it doesn't have any taste. Exactly. Yes. Um, well, I guess it could be horrible just because it was tasteless. That's that true. Was what I was going Hot for. Hot water, really. If you're... Yeah, pretty much. Um Maybe my, maybe my complaint is more that it's too expensive. If you're throwing a lot of expensive ingredients into a soup, it really should taste better than water. Yep. That's, your, that's your baseline. So if, if we just rated everybody an 80, then that's, that's water. But it's also way easier. You don't have to make up weights and stats and, and contract Hawkeye and stuff like that. You just you know, turn on the tap and then heat up some water. Um, but yeah, I mean, there, 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 there's so much potential. And l- like you said, Carl, there's some really fascinating stats listed here, like change in presumably topspin ground stroke speed. Uh, that's the sort of stuff that you can only get from Hawkeye stats. And that means that the people who built this stat are, as far as I know, the only people on earth who get to work with this data from ATP Masters events. And the fact that this is what they're doing with it is absolutely infuriating. You know, there's so much potential and they're doing absolutely nothing. Well, instead of being infuriated, I think we should be excited that this is V0 and they're listening to the show and you heard it from Jeff. Just give him this data and he'll come up with something better in a few weeks. Yeah, that's the optimistic view. I'm afraid the optimism for me, uh, my optimism has been slowly torn away from me. Uh, after after years of this and seeing the same Hawkeye data squandered for, I don't know, we're going on a decade now of Hawkeye data. So, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe this is the turning point, but I'm not <laughs> counting maybe on not. It. I You know, just two yeah. other small things. One, this I don't even really blame them for, but we mentioned briefly that they're only using data from the Masters 1000 tournaments except for one of the components of one of the stats and on the one hand, sure, those are the ones that have the best um, that they'll have the best Hawkeye coverage while also being part of the ATP tour and not part of uh, the slams. And they're where the biggest players are in the biggest matches. So I get it. At the same time, like try saying that to an analyst in any other sport that it's just these select games that we're going to include because of some characteristic they happen to have, even though the other games count as official games and they'll, they'll tear their hair out. So that that's probably the best they could do. But, and, and, you know, some of these, even some of these guys might've played on courts that didn't have in the early rounds, Hawkeye data at all, which is also incredibly frustrating. So they worked with what they had, but that's such a, selective sample for instance it certainly helps is very relative to looking at the slams and then the other point is they take these four components and then they just average them equally like these four categories they thought of that are credible like they probably aren't that different from what i'd come up with if i had to think of four categories but there's no reason to weight them equally necessarily except like i guess that's the the easiest answer so you know then we end up with Isner is overall a 76 in skills and uh, Chilich is a 77 and I don't know what to do with that. Yeah, they definitely don't know what to do with that either other than the decision to arbitrarily average them. And you you just said, Carl, that they might be the, the categories you'd come up with. And if I were looking for categories that were interesting, I mean, just things to talk about, then these might be the ones. But if you want categories that break down things that result in winning tennis matches, then these are definitely not them. What are you for? Um, 
Well, I knew you were going to ask me that, and I was hoping while I, while I let off my manifesto, they would pop into my head. But I think baseline, you have to have a stat that's just serve, uh, I don't know, let's say potency. I've used that in stats before. So serve potency is a stat, return potency is a stat, then maybe say like, like ground game effectiveness is a stat, and then everything else, which might be predominantly net play. And you'd figure out what the weight should be based on how much they vary between players, how much they, how well they correlate to, um, to match results independent of the effect of the the other three stats. And you would not weight them equally because I, I, I'm guessing that that serve is going to be more important than return. Um, not sure how they would compare to ground game, but then ground game is going to be more important than the net game. But I mean, I think those four would give you a better idea of the uh, sort of a profile of the different players. I mean, under pressure is the the maybe the stat that I heard the commentators talking about the most, and that's the one that might actually be meaningless. I mean, that's the one that I might keep be random. Hunting. Yeah, I keep hunting for evidence that it's not random. And at least in all the individual cases I've looked at, like the um, the impact of a seventh game or whether players are good at tie breaks or not, stuff like that, like there isn't evidence that players are consistently good or bad under pressure. So we're leading with this stat that might be completely meaningless. I completely agree. And I think your four are are also interesting. I, <laughs> I'm also thinking of, have you seen any ESPN broadcasts, especially of majors where they put up like four or five categories in which they compare the players and then their check marks. And sometimes there are three check marks. I don't know what that means. Have you seen that? No. Does, do, do three check marks mean that you're verified on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram? <laughs> it's like the EGOT of social media. I, think it just means that they want a way to not insult players, but also say their opponents are better. So they, if they give a guy two, then they have to give the opponent three. I, I don't know. But it's something where Brad Gilbert fills them in under prompting by the other commentators. And they're, they're more in this camp. They're more in the like, well, how is, how is she under pressure? You know, how is she on attack? Yeah, I, I think that's my, my main complaint with this is, I mean, aside from the fact that we're squandering this amazing resource of all the Hawkeye data even if it is limited to Masters events, then these numbers are just sort of a, a, a quasi-scientific way of, of asking the commentators for their check marks. I mean, that, that, that's all it is. It just looks more precise than that because we have numbers between 54 and 97. So, I don't know. It's, it's, it, it's, it's mostly garbage to me, and the, the only real benefit is when I start getting angry, then I sometimes get better ideas than I would otherwise if I had nothing to be angry about. I'm thinking of ways uh, to anger you now. Yeah. Oh, boy. Uh, can't wait to see my, my Twitter replies if people decide that's a desirable thing to do. Um, but we should talk about something else that might be a little bit angering since we're, we're rapidly running up on the hour mark, and I have already gone on record saying I wanted to talk about the ATP Cup. So... Setting aside the skill set index, we're not going to talk about skill anymore at all. Uh, and the ATP Cup is not happening next year, but it is on the schedule now for January 2020. And the way it's going to work is, I believe, the two weeks before the Australian Open. This is all happening in Australia. Um, it's a 10-day event, and 24 countries will be represented. So more than the the revamped Davis Cup Uh and there will be a round-robin stage, I think six groups of four countries each, and then eight countries will advance to the quarterfinals, and then there's the knockout stages to finally determine a winner. Every country versus country tie is two singles matches and a doubles match, and entry into the event is determined by the ranking, the best singles ranking of anyone from your country. Uh, so it's it's the the qualification is a little different from the new Davis Cup, and it's a little longer than the new Davis Cup, and uh, there's more countries, although not a huge difference there. Um, the big controversial thing here is that in 
late 2019, we have the first new Davis Cup. And then six weeks later, we have the ATP Cup. So I, I, I think Chris Kermode said something about this being, this being, quote, insane, that there would be two events six weeks apart, and then we went ahead and did it. Uh, how do you feel about this, Carl? Is this the end of tennis as we know it? Is this good, bad, in between? <laughs> Apparently, according to Kermode, tennis is losing its mind. I I am somewhat bullish on this, partly because the the period at the start of the season is is somewhat open for something different. Like this is obviously not great for Hopman Cup, and I like Hopman Cup. Well, this is the end of Hopman this, Cup. I this think. is really bad for Hopman Cup, and <laughs> and Hopman Cup was was had some similarities to this format and may have helped inspire this format, but was a mixed gender event and a woman and a man from each country competed together. I just see that part of the calendar as such a bizarre one because players have been optimizing for that moment in the calendar. They're they're at their best health. They're in their best mood. That's what they all say, and there's a big slam coming up they have to get ready for and there isn't on the men's side there certainly is on the women's side on the men's side there isn't a big tournament during that lead-up period there isn't that there aren't many ranking points up for grabs other than going to somewhere geographically indefensible in the, in the middle east uh there there isn't a lot of money up for grabs and 2020 is pretty good timing because there are olympics that year and some of these Players are going to be thinking about representing their country in singles and in doubles, even if they don't normally play doubles. So for all those reasons, I th- think it could go pretty well. And and you also looked up some cool stats that make me feel good about it. What did you, What are you thinking of? Oh, just, you know, you were thinking with that many countries, how many top players, how many countries are going to actually have top players. And because of the, the diversity of nationality of the ATP top 50 and top 100, we should have pretty strong teams up and down the field if players participate, which is a giant if, and if the rankings are similar in 14 months or whatever. Um, so, so yeah, that, that makes me feel like this, this could produce a lot of fun matchups. Yeah, I... I... When when we were first talking about having a big ATP Cup and a new Davis Cup, I mean, this conversation has been going on for at least a year now with both of these ideas floated. Um, I, I was pretty skeptical, especially with changing the, the Davis Cup. But now that we're here, the the ATP Cup doesn't sound all that bad. And one one reason for that is because it even though it, it, they're, they're posing it as a very big event and it will play a big role in the lead-up to the Australian Open... Um, Technically, they're just bringing back the World Team Cup that was played in Dusseldorf for so many years. I mean, it, it hasn't been on the calendar for five or six years, but it was a standard part of the pre-French Open calendar for a really long time. And, you know, the world kept spinning. Davis Cup kept functioning. I mean, everybody was happy. I think this will need to be a bigger event with more players showing up and participating, but... There's a lot of evidence from the past that suggests you can have both coexisting and everyone being reasonably happy. Yeah, and I think I've expressed many times on the show my wish for less sameness on tour and all, you know showing up and playing a single elimination tournament and saying someone's the champion even though he, he just starts from scratch the next week. There's something nice about having different kinds of championships you can win. And you're still playing tennis, so it's still the matches are still meaningful and they still give you useful training and, and interesting results, but there is because of the different format, something different at stake. And I like that. Yeah. And it, it, it does put a lot more emphasis on doubles. That's I think one benefit of this and the new Davis cup format that by having one doubles match and two singles matches instead of one doubles match and four singles matches, then it ends up really mattering how good your doubles team is. Uh, and like you pointed out one of your first reactions, Carl, was that the, the U.S. could be very good in this format. I guess the, the Bryan brothers will be increasingly not a factor because of their age. But uh, I'm guessing the U.S. will be able to produce a good doubles team for many years to come, largely because of Jack Sock. Um, so if you have a couple decent singles players, even if you don't have one truly elite one, if you have a couple decent singles players and a good doubles team, then... 
yeah, you're you're right in the running more than you would be in Davis Cup. We should give a quick or the, the old fashioned Davis Cup. We should give a quick plug since we talked about doubles at the tour finals that oh I think you mentioned the result. Yeah. Sock and Brian won another big title in their their last tournament together and showed the strength of US doubles that may may matter for ATP Cup. Uh, should we talk since we've referenced Davis Cup, should we should we talk about that before the hour's up? I think we should. Yeah. So these last few minutes, uh, we are we're recording this on Monday, so we're four days away from not just the Davis Cup final, but the final Davis Cup final in the traditional format. And it's come down to France and Croatia, and France has been a powerhouse for many years, but it's sort of in a transitional period uh, with guys like Sanga and Gasquet and Malfi's. Uh, out of the picture, not even on the roster. Give Simone a shout-out. You almost said Simone. I should have said Simone. I knew there was one more that I was I was forgetting. I always forget one. Uh, and even Beneteau, who's retired after playing the doubles in the, the Davis Cup semifinal. So instead, we have Luca Pui, Jeremy Chardy, and then the doubles team of Herbert Mahou, who were the runners-up to Sock Bryan yesterday. And... Facing them in the final is Croatia, who knocked out the U.S. in the semifinal, I believe. And they've got a stronger singles lineup in Marin Cilic and Borna Cilic, But the doubles looks a little weaker with um, Mate Pavic, who's a, a top player in his own right, but with Franco Skubor, who's not as much. So, gut feeling, Carl, which way do you think this will go? Croatia. Really? Yeah. Okay. I mean, on I think on paper you'd have to give the edge to Croatia uh, because the singles players are so much stronger. I mean, both Cilic and Koric are ranked above Pui, uh, considerably above Shardy, so it could be a clean sweep in the singles. Uh, have to wonder about. You know, this is ironic that I'm saying this right after lashing into the whole concept of an under pressure score, but you have to wonder a little bit about Marin Cilic's mindset at this point. I mean, he. He lost a bunch of tie breaks at the Tour Finals. Um, he let one of the matches slip away in the Davis Cup semis against the U.S. I mean, he, on big stages, he has appeared to be quite mentally weak. I mean, do you think we can just set that aside and assume that kind of stuff is random? Or do you think that's a factor that is going to be overridden by the fact that the Croatian team is still that much stronger? It's funny because I think he was ranked, yep, he was ranked the lowest for under pressure. So I, I think I think it got to you. I think it's <laughs> it's changed your, your outlook. No, you're right. I mean, there have been... No, I, 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 didn't, I didn't know that. Okay. I, I, I've, every time I looked at that table, I just, I got so mad, I couldn't remember any of the numbers. So, so no, I... I but I think I think it has been overplayed a little bit in commentary, especially I think his tiebreak results at the tour finals have been pretty bad. Yeah, and he's had you know he lost up two sets to Del Potro in the Davis Cup final two years ago, I think maybe one year ago, and he that was it was I think it was two years ago because it was after he had been up two sets on Federer at Wimbledon and lost. I think it's possible he gets late in a match on the road in in a packed stadium I, I was at the 2014 davis cup final at that same stadium and it's not my favorite but it's in and it's enormous but it was packed and the french crowd is pretty passionate about davis cup yeah i could see that getting to him but Puy or shardy would have to force him into that sort of situation and i think he's considerably ahead of both of them and the french chose clay and that's not great for Chilich or Chorich, but it's not great for Puy or Shardy either. So, uh, yeah, I, I still I, I don't like Croatia as like 80% favorites, but maybe 58%. 58%. There you go. There's the, the final word from the expert. Uh, <laughs> the expert at making up numbers that aren't round. Yeah, that, that makes them sound that much more believable. I like it. So... Let's call that good for episode 41. Um, I'm not sure what sort of podcasting schedule we're going to keep up during the off-season. I guess it will depend on how much news there is and how much we want to talk about this week's challengers in Andrea, Italy, and, and other exciting places around the world. Pune, India. Um, yeah, there we go. And, and actually, the, the, the India challenger is, I think it's the, the last 
the last ever, I'm putting ever in scare quotes because I don't really know, but um, the last challenger with a Saturday final. Because the, the challenger format's changing a little bit uh, next year along with the, the ITF transition tour coming into effect. And a lot of a lot of tweaks at the lower levels of tennis, but that means that the Pune Challenger is the, the last Saturday final. So everybody make your way there for this historic event. Um, Jeff, can I, one, so yeah. one last thing in this last minute, what's your prediction yeah. with probability for Davis cup final? Mm. It's a tough one. I just to, just to be difficult, I'm going to say 47, well, 47% for Croatia. So I'm making France my narrow favorites. Uh, I don't really believe in home court advantage, but I don't know. The, the doubles team looks so good. It's to, my, this is totally irrational. I think if I, if I, plugged my ELO ratings into this, that it would be even more tilted towards Croatia than your prediction. But my gut says France is a very, very narrow favorite. It'll be interesting to watch. I think we could have some some good matches, especially with, with Chorich in best of five. Um, so, yeah, like I said, I'm not sure what our, what our schedule will be over the offseason, but we'll probably... Throw in a few episodes here and there before we get set for the the final Hopman Cup and the Australian Open in in January. We should probably have an entire episode devoted to the great careers of Lucy Safarova and Agnieszka Radvanska, both of whom are either just retired or will retire at the Australian Open. But we'll see about that. Everyone, thank you for listening to this episode and for really the whole season this year. Carl, thank you for joining me as always. My pleasure. And... Yeah, that wraps up episode 41, and we'll be back with you, well, sooner or later.